You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we ask for your favor upon us as the word of God is open, and we pray that you would uh, strengthen us for having gathered together. I pray for the lost to be saved today under the hearing and preaching of your word. And I pray for your church to be sanctified. I want, I pray, Father, we all pray that we would be found ready when our Lord Jesus returns. And may it be so, and may the preaching and hearing of your word be anointed today. In Christ's name, amen. We're in the Olivet Discourse midway through it now. And the Olivet Discourse began with a question in verse 3 of chapter 24. In fact, it was three questions folded into one, and one of those questions was, what will be the sign of your coming, the parousia, the second coming of Jesus Christ? And this is what he's speaking of now. This second half of the Olivet Discourse speaks of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his second coming, when he will return bodily to earth and he will judge the living and the dead. Last week, we learned, in, um, we learned that we need to be ready for His second coming. We need to be ready for it. That was emphasized. We saw that as, we, as I closed off the text in verse 44. It says, Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's coming when you don't know He's going to come. And because of that, you need to be ready. We need to be ready. Now, you might have left last week thinking, well, what does it mean to be ready? You might have left scratching your head wondering that, and if so, I'm glad you asked, because this week we talk about what it means to be ready. What does it mean to be ready for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be ready? And today, in order to teach us that, Jesus provides a quick parable, a little story to illustrate what it means to be ready for the Lord Jesus when he comes again. And the parable is divided up into two parts. The first part of the parable talks about the one who is ready. The second part of the parable talks about the one who is not ready. Both The one who is ready and the one who is not ready, both of them are basically chief slaves 
in a house or on a farm that is taken care of by slave labor. And the master, the master of the slaves, the owner, appoints one to be a chief slave. And the master leaves, and in his absence, he tells the chief slave that it is his job to take care of all of the other slaves. So both are stewards of a master's house, and both are tasked with responsibility. And only one is ready for his master's return. The other is not ready. So to illustrate what it means to be ready, Jesus speaks of one slave that is ready and one slave that's not ready. And I think it's very appropriate that the Lord uses the language of slave to describe his people. Because over and again in the Bible, Christians are referred to as the slaves of Christ. We have been bought by the blood of Jesus. We are not our own. Purchased and redeemed with a price. The price of his own blood. And therefore, how we govern and manage our lives is not our prerogative, but it is the prerogative of our master. We are his Slaves, so it's very appropriate that Jesus has chosen to use such language. And today he describes a slave who is ready for his master's return and a slave who is not ready for his master's return. I hope you are a slave that is ready. I hope you are ready for your master's return. Being ready, he defines what being ready is, and being ready is not sitting idly by with your bags packed waiting for the train to come. That's not what being ready means. We find today that being ready is joyfully serving the master, being faithful with what he has tasked you. So every one of us, has been given a little responsibility and some bigger responsibilities than others. But every one of us is given responsibility here on God's green earth. And being ready means you're properly caring for the responsibilities that he's given you. So today, my outline is thus. The one who is ready and the one who is not ready. Very easy. The one who is ready and the one who's not ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's talk about the one who is ready for Christ's return. This, of course, assumes that Jesus will return bodily. And it assumes that we should be ready for his bodily return. I believe that. I hope you do. He will return bodily. He will return bodily at an hour and a day and a time that you do not expect. And we must be ready for his return. And this first slave is the slave who is ready. Verse 45 asks a question, and in asking the question about readiness, it actually describes the slave some. It says, verse 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant, our slave, bondservant? whom his master has set over his household, could also translate household of slaves, 
to give them their food at a proper time. Verse 45 asks the question about who the faithful and wise slave is. And in even asking the question, this slave who is ready is described. The question describes him. He is the one who is faithful, and he is the one who is wise. It describes him. The word faithful means to be worthy of trust and confidence, and to be wise is to be thoughtful, intelligent, discerning, and sensible. Now, I said it many times again, I've preached it, I believe, in justification by faith alone. You are only saved by God's grace, and that gift of God's grace is received through faith. In the Gospel of Matthew, disciples are repeatedly described by what they do, nonetheless, by what they do. Because true saving faith comes from a grace that doesn't just give you faith, but a grace that penetrates the heart so that you produce good works. Always. And so Jesus doesn't describe the one who is ready. doesn't describe him as saying, well, this is one that said the sinner's prayer. Or this is one that made a profession of faith at one time in his life. That's not how he describes them. He describes them as the faithful and the wise, not as one who was raised in a Christian home, necessarily, but as one who is faithful and wise. Faithful, worthy of trust and confidence. This means that you live your life in such a way that your master trusts you. And beyond that, wise, to be thoughtful, intelligent, discerning, and sensible. Now, sometimes when we think of wisdom, we think of some ivory tower type wisdom, where you have some philosopher philosophizing his wisdom, right? But when the Bible talks about wisdom, it is very practical. The Bible is a very earthy book. It's no coincidence that the greatest king of Israel was David, and he was a shepherd boy. He knew how real life worked because he was a shepherd of the flock. And it's no coincidence that our Lord Jesus was a carpenter's son who learned to work with his hands. And it's no coincidence that our Lord Jesus' first disciples were fishermen. These are people who understand how the world works. And because they understand how the world works, they understand how to apply the wisdom of God to real life. And so when the Bible talks about the faithful and the wise, it's talking about somebody who lives his life in a way that honors God, his real life. And, and by the way, I find it interesting that as the Lord describes someone who is faithful and wise here, he's not describing some monk off in the desert somewhere. He's describing a slave that works on a farm, someone that has a real job in a real place using his hands on a farm. And so this is the way the Lord describes him. He doesn't say the one who is faithful and wise is a monk in the desert somewhere, 
or the one who is faithful and wise spends every day, all day in the dark with a candle lit praying. No, this is somebody who actually has things to do and he gets them done. Okay? The faithful and wise one, the one who is ready and who is tasked with responsibility. And what does this faithful and wise one do? Well, the text tells us that his master has set him over his household. Verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? The idea is of a chief slave over something like a major farming operation. The master owns a major farming operation, and the slave is appointed by the master as a chief slave. And as such, he is to manage the other slaves on the farm and care for them while the master is away. Appoints him, is the chief slave, master leaves, master says, here's the food and the resources, you make sure my slaves are taken care of while I'm gone, and when I come back, uh, you, you should be found faithful. So the master actually entrusted the food to him, and it, he must ration and provide allotments of food to the many slaves in his master's farm. Verse 45, it says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household, household of slaves, to give them, who? The slaves, their appointed food at the proper time. The slave is faithful to distribute the food accordingly right up until the master's return. That's what he's tasked with. How does... What does the master look for? He looks for a man that heard what he has to get done, and then he looked for a man who got done what he had to get done. It's that simple. He had ears to listen and hands to execute. The master gave him a task. The question is, will he be found faithful in the task? This particular slave is the one who is ready for his master's return. Verse 46. Blessed is that servant, why? Whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So doing what? Doing what his master told him to do. The ones who see themselves as stewards of the owner's goods and use the owner's goods the way the owner wants them to, those are the faithful servants who are ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. You look out on this green earth of the Lord's and you say, that's my little patch on this green earth that the Lord's given me. So whatever it is, maybe it's a business that you own, maybe you're serving, you're working for somebody else, you're a husband or you're a wife or you've got children or you're at home with your parents and you go to a church, you say, I got all these different hats that I wear and what it means to be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is that I am faithful with all of these responsibilities when my master returns. The ones who are ready use the owner's goods the way the owner wants them to. And, and our job as Christians is to see that what he's given us are really his. That's why the Bible calls us slaves, because we're just stewards of the master's resources. And the ready ones are normal people. The text is indicating that. Why? Well, it's not some, as I said, it's not some monk off somewhere. 
right? It's not describing the, someone who's super-duper spiritual, right? It's that some, some unreachable, unattainable goal that you have. It is a normal Christian person overseeing what his master's given him. If you're a farmer, your master's given you a farm. If you're an engineer, your master's given you things to design. If you're a student, your master's given you studies. If you're a laborer, he's given you tasks. If you're a mom, he's given you children and a house to care for. If you're a dad, he's given you a family to protect and provide for. And if you go to a church, he's given you a church to contribute to. But the reality is, is faithfulness is discerned by whether or not you are carrying out your responsibilities the way that God designed for them to be carried out. Look at what he does. Verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Doing. You see that the, what the Christian life is? Yes, the Bible talks about rest. But do you know so much of the Christian life is about doing? We ought to have no patience for idleness in the church. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Okay? Idle behavior is a reproach. It is a reproach, and it is a stain, and it is a spot on the Christian testimony. It is, it is actually, idleness is rebellion. And we ought not have time for idleness, because the one who is faithful is not sitting on his can. He's using his hands, or he's using his mind, and he's using his hurt or his heart to do what his master wants him to do. He's being productive with his master's resources. Greek scholar R.T. France said, the readiness of the good slave consists not in sitting by the window watching for his master, but in getting on with the job he has been given. The good slave gets her done. The one who is ready is the one that is getting her done, in other words. He's got a job to do and he does it. And the master rewards the ready servant. Verse 47. He returns, he finds the servant doing. Verse 47 says, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. You notice what the reward is? The reward isn't ease. The reward is honor and responsibility. More responsibility. I really believe that when heaven finally meets earth, and we have the new heavens and the new earth, I really believe that one of the things that is going to characterize our daily existence in heaven is going to be simply the fact that there will be a direct correlation between work and honor and faithfulness. Right now, you can work, and you don't always get honor, and you don't always get or you don't always get fruitfulness. But then, I believe there's a direct correlation, as God planned for it to be, between work, which leads to fruitfulness and honor. And this is what it's saying. When you are faithful to your master, he rewards you with honor and responsibility. This is what your master is looking for. Heaven will not be a lazy place because God didn't design us to be lazy. He designed us to be doing things. 
And what did he design us to be doing? He designed us to be doing whatever task he has. He's a creative God. He's made all kinds of different people in this world. A lot of different people that have a lot of different roles in this room. Okay? But whatever it is he's given you, providentially brought into your life, that's what you're supposed to be doing in a way that brings him honor. You're to be using your mind, your heart, and your hands for his glory. The one who is ready for the return of Jesus is the one who works faithfully where God puts him and is then rewarded with responsibility and honor in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a wonderful promise. That's the one who is ready. So you want to know what it is to be ready? It means you're simply being faithful with everything that the Lord gives you. You're just in the daily doing of things. This is a very simple thing. You just live your life in a way that brings honor to the Lord. You carry out your task. You build your home. You do your business. You fulfill your responsibilities in a way that brings honor to the Lord. It's so simple. It's so simple. But who is the one that is not ready? That's the next question. We have the one who is ready. Who is the one who is not ready? Well, let's talk about him for a moment. But before I get into talking about him, just notice how much more volume Jesus gives to the one who is not ready over the one who is ready. Just as you look at the text, you just look at the volume there. Verse 45 to 47 describes the one who is not re- or who is ready. Verse 48 through 51 describes the one who's not ready. There's a lot more words used to describe the one who's not ready. And in fact, the bulk of the words that are added to it deal specifically with the horrifying consequences of the one who's not ready. So, all that is to say that the warning is stronger then the commendation, the condemnation of the one who is not ready is stronger than the commendation of the one who is ready. So I've, I've been around long enough, and I've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew for a while now, and some people want to complain that there's too much talk about hell sometimes, or there's too much condemnation. But I want you to notice, as we've been through this Gospel of Matthew, I want you to notice how often Jesus condemns bad behavior and just parks the car there and keeps condemning it and doesn't stop for a while. And the detail in which Jesus goes into as he describes hell, not once, not twice, but again and again and again. I mean, I haven't done the math, but I would, I would suggest that the amount that he talks about hell is probably twice the amount he talks about heaven in the Gospel of Matthew, if not more. I haven't done the math. One of you can do the math and, and figure it out. But the amount that goes into warnings of hell compared to talk of heaven is, is far greater, and the same is true in this text here, the one who is not ready. And so it is a shame 
And it is a blight on the church today that there's not more talk about hell. You know, there's some places you can sit under the preaching for years and not hear about hell. But I think if there was more hell in the pulpits, there'd be a lot less hell in the streets. And so I think we need a little bit more of it, to be honest with you. But nonetheless, we'll get into our text today about the one who's not ready. And Jesus said in verse 48, he said, But, I, but if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed. So this is the wicked servant, the one who's not ready. And he's described as wicked. One who is not ready is immediately described as wicked. That's a moral judgment that's being made upon him. And there is such a thing as wickedness. You see this all the time in our world. The first thing that people want to go to now when there's, there's a wicked person is say, well, maybe we can treat that person medically to make them right. But typically the problem is they're just wicked. There's a category for evil. Okay? And people who do evil things are evil people. They're, they're wicked people. The reason that their brains aren't functioning properly is because wickedness makes their brains function improperly. They've learned to live in a way that is manufactured by lies. And that makes the brain not function properly. So you can treat them wickedness medically all you want, but I think if, if the last few generations have taught us anything, they've taught us anything, it's that the psychologizing of wickedness has just created more wickedness. And what we really need to do is call it what it is, and it's wicked to the core. And this man is wicked. And the wickedness, by the way, starts in his heart. Some people think the wickedness starts somewhere out there. No, the wickedness starts in the heart. Look at what the text says, verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself, he's, he's speaking to himself, and the King James actually translates that, says in his heart which is accurate because the Greek word is cardia, from which we get our English cardiology, okay, heart. And it says, it's, he says this in his heart. And so he has this thought that comes in his heart, and the heart is the center of emotion. The heart is the center of desire. The heart is the center of, of thought. And so the wicked ideas, thoughts, desires, and emotions start to bubble out of the heart. And this man says something in his heart that's a lie. His heart lacks vigilance because what happened was his master didn't return when he thought he would. And so he thinks that he won't return soon and he tricks himself with a lie. Look at what it says. Truly I say to you, sorry, verse, 80, verse 48, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. The word there, delayed, is a present. And so the idea is he's delaying and he's delaying and he's delaying. And the thought is going through his mind as a result of his delaying. He figures that his master is not going to come back soon. And so, again, what do we notice? We notice that the sin begins with a lie. The sin always begins with a lie. And the lie is, well, my master didn't come back yesterday. My master didn't come back the day before. He didn't come back the day before that. But guess what? He's probably not going to come back today. And I can get away with sin. Sin always begins with the lie that you can get away with it. Every single time. Always starts with this lie that you can get away with it. 
And because he's in a position of authority over the other slaves, he carries out his self-indulgence in his master's name, with the authority that his master's name gives him. So verse 49 says, and begins to beat his fellow servants. So he treats them poorly and eats and drinks with drunkards. So instead of caring for his fellow servants like his master told him to, he beats them and abuses them. And instead of using the food supplies for the fellow servants as his master told him to, he uses it for drunken, gluttonous revelry with drunkards. And so this is self-indulgence. What you're seeing here on display is self-indulgence. It's exactly, by the way, what God accused the faithless shepherds of doing in Ezekiel 34, verse 8. They were self-indulgent. They thought of their own needs, and they didn't think of the needs of others. And the sin, by the way, of, of one sin that is embodying this sense of self-indulgence is the sin of drunkenness. You see what it says? The em emphasis is on the drunkenness. Yes, he beats them, so he's abusive to those under his power. And yes, he's gluttonous, but the emphasis is on the drunkenness because it just it closes by saying he drinks with drunkards. And some of you might have wondered what Jesus thinks about drunkenness. And by that I could say some of you might have wondered by what Jesus thinks about getting high. They're two in the same thing. And drunkenness epitomizes the evil servant. The evil servant is a drunkard. Drunkenness with drunkards. He keeps company with drunkards, and he is himself a drunkard. Drunkenness epitomizes selfishness, and drunkenness epitomizes laziness, and drunkenness epitomizes putting your guard down and a lack of vigilance when it comes to the things of God. Because one of the things we know about drunkenness is that it leads to all kinds of other sins. John Bunyan actually said, he said, how beastly a sin drunkenness it is. is. It bereaveth a man of consideration and civil behavior. It makes him as brutish and shameless as a beast. Yea, it discovereth this, his nakedness to all that behold. Isn't that true? Matthew Henry said, Drunkenness is an inlet to all manner of sin. It is a leading wickedness. So what does this man do? Well, instead of being responsible with what the Lord gives him, this man uses his mind, he uses his heart, and he uses the resources of God to get drunk and party. And he does, though, under the pretense that, hey, the master's not going to come back when I'm drunk. The master's not going to come back when I'm in my gluttonous revelry, drinking with my drunkard friends. He, will, he didn't come back yesterday, so he surely won't come back when I'm getting drunk now. And it's all premised on the false belief that the master is delayed. All sin comes from that belief. You say, all oh, the sin comes from somewhere out there. No, the sin comes from the belief that the master's not going to find you. That you'll get through the sin and be able to apologize before it's said and done. And the master won't come back and find you there red-handed in the act of sin. And he gets caught, though. Verse 50, look at what verse 50 says. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour when he does not know. He gets caught, and his master arrives. 
He should have heeded the master's warnings. The master's warnings occurred where? In verse 42. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. Verse 44. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming an hour you do not expect. If he had to believe this, he, wouldn't have, he would have stayed out of the drunkenness. You know, the Bible is very practical. If you want to keep your kids from drunkenness, teach them that they don't want Jesus to catch them drunk. He'd come back any moment. You know what the, the people down, you see all the crackheads walking around in Kitchener. Do you know what they need? They need a fear of the Lord. They don't need more needles and drugs handed to them. Well, you say, oh, well, the fear of the Lord, that'll psychologically damage children. Well, since we took away the fear of the Lord, do you have more or less psychologically damaged people? Got a lot more of them walking around. And they're becoming a real problem. And, and the only solution that these knuckleheads have is to give them more drugs and give them more needles. But if you want to deal with drunkenness and you want to deal with addicts, here's what they need. They need the fear of the Lord. This is the only solution. Because guess what? If God comes back and he catches you drunk or he catches you high, look at what he says he's going to do with you. Verse 51, and will cut him in pieces. That's pretty strong. That's not coddling them. Oh, I'm sorry you had a poor childhood. I'll excuse your drunkenness. No, he won't. He'll cut you in pieces is what it says. No joke in that. You know what? If you want to put an end to watching pornography, just remember that the Lord could return and catch you watching pornography. You say you sit there in a dark room with your phone on and nobody catches you and nobody knows what's going on. What are you going to do if the Lord Jesus shows up and taps you on the shoulder right then? I know what you're going to do. You're going to be cut in pieces. Just like he said. Why? Because you weren't expecting it and he caught you. And that's not the way it's supposed to go. What are you going to do if you're having premarital sex and the Lord shows up right in the act? Are you involved in adultery? Are you involved in some other thing that you're absolutely ashamed of and you absolutely should be ashamed of? And that's where the Lord shows up. Right there, in that very, very, very moment. Look at what the text says. He will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, it's a lot easier to fight sin if you keep this in mind. A lot easier to fight sin if you keep this in mind. But guess what? This servant didn't keep this in mind, so he got caught, and he was cut up in pieces, and he was thrown into the fire where there was weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The consequence of being caught in rebellion when Christ returns are absolutely horrifying. Horrifying. You can't think of anything more horrifying than this. Unending pain, misery, coupled with everlasting, inconsolable hopelessness and regret. If, if you were only hopeless and regretful for 10,000 years, it wouldn't be that long. But this is inconsolable forever. Inconsolable forever. You know, the parents that teach their children, oh, you know, they're going to sow their wild oats when they're young, and that's absolutely okay. You're doing your kids no favor. You're maybe setting them up for judgment day. Because the Lord Jesus could return right in the act, and that would be the end of it. You don't want that. And what is our Lord telling us here? 
He is asking that the guard is always up, that vigilance is always there, that you're always on alert, that red alert, red alert, Jesus could come back at any moment. Don't mess around with this stuff. This is a sober warning for each one of us. And you say, well, you know, this whole weeping and gnashing of teeth, boy, oh boy, that's harsh. I don't want to hear that kind of stuff. You know, he says the exact same thing in chapter 8, verse 12. He says the exact same thing in chapter 13, verse 42. He says the exact same thing in chapter 13, verse 50. He says the exact same thing in chapter 22, verse 13. He says it right here in 24, verse 51. And he says that in 25, verse 30. And I believe that most of those warnings, do you know who those warnings go out against? They go out against church people, religious people. Because you know what he says here? The hypocrites. The people that go on and they... Go to church on Sunday, and they, you know, they, and then, oh, they got caught in the sin again, and in the sin again, and in the sin again, and you get tired of it. You know, some guys, oh, I, I struggle with porn, and then he just confesses his porn every single week, like he's going into a Roman Catholic confessional or something. How about stop it? Because the Lord can come back at any moment. You don't want that, and then these people get coddled. Well, I'm, so I'm very, you know, it's very hard, and I understand, and it's so hard. Look at what Jesus says. If I come back and I catch you doing that nonsense, chopped up in pieces and thrown into the place with the hypocrites where they're weeping and gnashing of teeth. You want to talk about an accountability partner, there's an accountability partner. <laughs> Next time I catch you doing this, you're going to be chopped up and thrown into the fire. That is accountability. And that is the accountability that apparently we need. He uses the word hypocrites, which is, by the way, a throwback to the seven woes in Matthew chapter 23 against the Pharisees, and the ones more concerned with looking religious than being religious. And this is a, this is a striking parable, by the way, or a striking parallel to the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21, because Jesus, actually, he is, the, the disciples have witnessed Jesus basically calling down the curses of God on the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And now what he's doing is he's turned it from the Pharisees and he's turning it to his disciples and he's saying, don't get too smug. Because if you're not careful, you could be just like the hypocrites. And you'll become one. And last week we learned to be ready and I guess this week we learned how to be ready. And how do you be Well, I know how not to be ready. You basically, not being ready is doing what your master doesn't want you to do, and being ready is doing what your master wants you to do. So are you ready? Are you ready to meet your master? Every moment of every day, every second of every day, are you ready? This is the thrust of our text of Scripture today. If you don't like it, take it up with the one who wrote it. If you don't like it, take it up with him. You will be ready for Christ's return by carefully and faithfully doing your job wherever the Lord Jesus places you. That's where you will be ready. This isn't some type of super spiritual person who prays 24 hours a day in the dark with a candle lit. This is a person who faithfully does his job. It's, it's parents who faithfully raise their children doing all that they can to ensure that their children are properly cared for and properly educated and, and, and discipled to become fully functioning Christian adults. 
That's what it is. And parents, you know, maybe you're fe feeling tired and weary for taking care of the kids and the you know, it's a, these are long days that you're having. Well, just remember that you want to be found a faithful servant when our Lord returns. So just keep going. I think this has to do, if you're going to be a faithful parent in our day and age, you're going to have to find a way to faithfully educate your kids. I don't think public education is an option for most of you, if any of you. It's no good, especially in this region. If you saw the blog I posted today, basically the Waterloo Region schools in the month of June are gay bars that offer free math lessons. That's about it. You don't want to send your kids down to that. You want to teach them in a wholesome environment where their, where their moral fortitude is formed in their hearts. Children are like unformed concrete. Okay, You don't take the forms off before the concrete sets. It's the same thing with children. You're faithfully caring for them. But you say, Jesus comes back and, well, the Lord, I, I didn't want to take the time to homeschool them and I didn't want to take the time to, send to spend the money in private school because I want a few extra bucks to spend on me and have a good time. Well, that's not going to fly because the faithful servant is using his resources to do exactly what the Lord wants him to do. And I guarantee if you've got children, he wants you to raise them properly. He really does. For housewives, this means that you're faithfully making your house into a home to serve your family. And, you know, you say, well, this is a hard job, and we know it is. And you faithfully, continually do it because this is your act of service to the Lord. For those who are employed or those who own businesses, you are faithfully carrying out your work with integrity day by day by day by day. You're doing it in an honest and productive way. This is what this means. If you're a father, you're providing for and you're protecting your family in an honest and wholesome and good way. If you're a mother, you're nourishing your family in the best way absolutely possible. And if you're involved in a church, which each one of you are, your church involvement is consistent and you invest in the church in a way that benefits the entire community. And by the way, it was passages like this, as they should have, it was passages like this that absolutely haunted me during lockdown times. Because I sure didn't want the Lord to come back and find me preaching to my congregation on YouTube. Because I knew that my job as a pastor is to gather the flock of God and to feed them and nourish them. And if that meant taking hits, that meant taking hits. But my objective and your objective should be to be found faithful on the day of his visitation and faithfully executing the duties that he's given you. Come what may. And so we live... As Christians, we must live in a manner that our master, or in a manner that believes our master could return at any moment. William Barclay said the most dangerous of all delusions is that there is plenty of time. Don't trick yourself. You say, oh, he didn't come back last yesterday. Oh, he didn't come back two weeks ago. Oh, he didn't. Look, this is the delusion. You don't know if there's plenty of time. The world can change in half a second. And then the day that he shows up and taps you on your shoulder, then it's too late. Because then it's chopping time, as the text says. It's weeping and wailing time. And our job is not to sit idly by with bags packed waiting after we get saved. No, that's not our job. Our job is to stay busy for our master, doing his business, desiring that when he returns, he finds us happily serving him. Serving him how? With our minds, our hearts, and our hands. All our minds, 
all our hearts, and all of our strength. We are his. We are bought with a price. We ought to live like it. Are you ready?